Good afternoon and welcome to Business Buzz. I'm your host, Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I look forward to an interesting holiday hour of information, a little bit about business, a little bit about Christmas, which is coming up. It's always nice to have a little time off and Christmas is usually the best season for that. So, glad you have a little time to spend with me today. After all, Christmas Eve only happens once a year. So, on Business Buzz, I try to stick to the topic of business, but I also like to talk about investments. And my main thing is I like talking about keeping your money safe. And, you know, I, I've been talking about that for quite a while. So, I've, I've got a little bit of interesting things for this holiday. Uh, one thing I was found interesting, I always hope to find some more local local business news as opposed to just national and you know, worldwide business and all that stuff. So what's interesting, this isn't purely local, it's kind of based in the Bay Area, but it's an article that is called A California Housing Crisis Mystery. And I got this from the Enterprise Records business section. It says, rents are way up this decade, but eviction filings are way down. And it says, despite a major run-up in rents, California landlords are using the courts far less frequently to remove tenants. And it says, Shirley Gibson isn't quite sure how to feel about these numbers. As directing attorney of the Legal Aid Society of San Mateo County, which offers legal services to low-income tenants caught between the preposterously priced southern suburbs of San Francisco and the preposterously priced suburbs of Silicon Valley, she's seen firsthand how California's housing affordability crisis has overwhelmed her clientele. Rents in San Mateo County have increased nearly 55% since the start of the decade. A two-bedroom in Redwood City, the county seat now goes for $3,500. Strong demand fueled by the influx of high-income tech workers means vacancy rates are low. It says, I don't know what a normal housing market is anymore, said Gibson. There's a rush. There's a tush for every seat right now. You can rent any unit you want within a week. Wow, theoretically that should have swelled the ranks of tenants needing to defend them in eviction court. Ever-escalating rent should make it harder to pay the rent on time, and delinquent payments are the most common reason a landlord sues to remove tenants from their property. Cutthroat demand presumably would spur landlords to evict more readily, knowing they won't risk months of lost revenue in a post-eviction vacancy. Yet, here's the interesting part of this article. Eviction lawsuits against San Mateo renters from 20 to 2010 to 2018 dropped nearly 50%. This year is going to be the lowest you've ever seen, said Gibson. I don't have a perfect explanation for why that is the case. Says it's counterintuitive amid a worsening housing crunch, but it's happening statewide. While the median rent in California increased 23% between 2011 and 2018, the number of times California landlords sued their tenants, tenants to evict them dropped by nearly 40%. Those dropping numbers nonetheless represent a significant number of California renters facing the prospect of a court-ordered eviction. 
Landlords initiated more than 137,000 of those in fiscal year 2017. There's no data on evictions that don't end up in court, although researchers estimate they're about twice as common as those that do. And they're just saying they don't really have an answer for why, if rents are 55% higher, why is the evictions in court amount going down? And then there's an interesting part of this. If you guys are a landlord or if you're a tenant, uh, this could be useful. Four different paths to evictions in California. Three-day or quit notices is number one. If tenants miss a rent payment or otherwise break the terms of a lease, they may find a three days to pay rent or quit notice affixed to their door. Many Many tenants simply choose to leave the premises rather than fight the eviction. No-fault eviction notices up to and through 2019. Landlords needed no justification to evict tenants on month-to-month leases. They could simply send a 30- or 60-day notice that their tenancy needed to end. Beginning in 2020, a new state law bans this practice in most circumstances. I know there's a a lot of my clients who are real estate-oriented have mentioned this news. This new California law that was just signed is making a lot of differences. I'm actually in the process of uh, reading that and learning it. I don't really know it by heart right now. But for those of you who are landlords or tenants, there are lots of new rules starting January 1st that are going to change a lot of the things that I believe it's going to be leaning towards helping tenants like this one here. Sounds like landlords will not be able to uh, just evict you on a 30-day notice anymore or a 60-day notice. Now, remember, this is all residential law. They usually don't mess too much with commercial rental law. Commercial rental law still may be subject to things like gouging and things, but it's definitely a lot less strict for commercial landlords than it is for residential landlords. That's a generality. So number three would be informal evictions. Landlords negotiate with tenants to get them to leave, either by offering them cash or other inducements or by threatening or harassing them. Eviction researchers say this is far more common than court case evictions. And then number four is suing tenants in court. When a tenant refuses to leave, landlords sue them for unlawful detainer of their property. Or as frequently happens, the renter fails to appear at court. The tenant can be forcibly evicted. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Uh, Whether you're a tenant or a landlord, uh, there definitely is new law coming into effect on uh, January 1. I'll probably talk about that in January on Business Buzz just to keep you guys posted. Like I say, I haven't really done the studying I need to do uh, to be uh, pretty knowledgeable about that, so I don't want to go off the off the seat of my pants. I've had some comments from uh, landlord clients who are already familiar with this law, but I don't want to go off of what they told me. I'm going to um, I'm going to do a little research myself before I discuss that. But hopefully it'll help hopefully it'll help everyone. That's the whole idea. Everybody gets along better and tenants and landlords are both happy and it's a win-win situation. Of course, that would be, that's the goal in all these different business transactions. I do want to point out that there is, there has been, if everybody remembers 2008, 
they had what they called a Lehman Brothers moment where they basically had to kill off a bunch of companies in order to save some other ones because everything now is so interrelated that one company going bust could end up bringing down the whole system. And that's kind of what happened in 08, but they ended up killing off a few companies to save a few others, uh, which I think is very unfair, but that's just me. And I don't think it's fair that the government can step in and save some companies and not others. I mean, those are private companies and, uh, that's really not what our tax dollars should be. That's not what they should be doing. They should save the system by fixing the system, not by bailing out friends and uh, European banks. So my point to that right now is that in September, some major problems began happening in what's called the overnight repo market. And It's very complicated. I've read a lot of articles. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but it's like a shell game where the money just flies around between banks and the Federal Reserve and uh, it goes back. It gets the bonds get bought and sold and repurchased. And it basically it's what's called liquidity. In other words, uh, they don't have enough money to do what they need to do. So they have this injection of liquidity in the repo market. And in September, the thing blew up. The normal interest rate for these overnight bank things is like one or one and a half percent. And in September, it spiked to 10%, which is, I don't believe it's ever happened before. So it's called the repo market. I'm going to try to educate you a little bit. Like I say, I'm not an expert. I don't pretend to be, but I want to fill you in on what some of this stuff that's going on. So I've got an article from December 16th, which isn't too long ago. And remember, I've been harping on Business Buzz for a long time that we don't have free markets anymore. It's all fake. And the title of this article is by Charles Hugh Smith. And his his website is called Of Two Minds Blog. And... The title of this article is a market, in quotes, a market that needs $1 trillion in panic money printing to stave off implosion is not a market. So he says, it was all fun and games enriching the super wealthy, but now the karmic cost of the Fed's manipulation and propaganda is about to come due. A market that needs $1 trillion in panic money printing by the Fed to stave off a karmic overdue implosion is not a market. A legitimate market enables price discovery. What is price discovery? The decisions and actions of buyers and sellers set the price of everything. Assets, goods, services, risk, and the price of borrowing money, i.e. interest rates and the availability of credit. The U.S. has not had legitimate market in 12 years. What we call the market is a crude simulation that obscures the Federal Reserve's socialism for the super wealthy. The vast majority of the income producing assets are owned by the super wealthy and so all the Fed money printing that's been needed to inflate asset bubbles to new extremes only serves to further enrich the already super wealthy. The apologists claim the bubbles must be inflated to help the average American but that claim is absurd, absurdly specious. The majority of Americans 
own near zero assets. Hang on, I'm sorry, I lost my I lost my page here. The majority of Americans own near zero assets that earn income. At best, they own rapidly depreciating vehicles, a home that doesn't generate any income, and a life insurance policy that pays off only when they pass away. The average American uses the family home for shelter, and so its currently inflated price does nothing to improve the household income, its paper wealth, and we're already seeing how rapidly that paper wealth can vanish when housing bubble number one popped. Housing bubble number two is currently sliding toward the edge of the abyss. Were legitimate price discovery allowed, the asset bubbles would pop, and the real-world impact on the average household that owns essentially zero income-producing assets would be minimal. Their overvalued house would fall in half, but since it still functions as shelter, the actual economic impact is minimal. As for the life insurance company's losses, where's the benefit today of an asset that only pays out when you die? Meanwhile, the super wealthy own stocks, bonds, companies, and commercial real estate, all of which generate income. The rich get richer in two ways. Their assets generate small fortunes and income. Unearned income is what separates the rich from everyone else. And thanks to the Fed's constant goosing of asset prices, their paper wealth has multiplied. I'll be back with more of this article after the first break. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm glad you have a chance to spend part of your Christmas Eve with me. I hope you stay with me for a little bit longer. I'll be right back after the break. One of the best evidences of the validity of the Bible surrounds the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 37 in the Bible describes a valley of dry bones representing Israel. That chapter indicates that in the last days, Israel will once again come back to life and be phenomenally prosperous. Before 1948, Israel as a country didn't even exist. Since then, Israel has become an unprecedented economic miracle. Their gross domestic product is bigger than Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan combined. Israeli-based companies are many of the world's leaders on the NASDAQ. They're one of the world's largest exporters of polished diamonds and fresh produce. And in a decade, Israel is poised to be one of the 10 wealthiest nations in the world. The Bible predicted that in the last days, Israel would begin from nowhere and with God's blessing become the envy of the world. If you need to see to believe, look at Ezekiel 38, then look at the nation of Israel. One more reason to believe. Documentation from the book Epicenter by Joel Rosenberg. You found Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM. Attention KKXX listeners, be sure to tune in weekdays at 8 a.m. for Hope for Today. We are excited to have the opportunity to air the Hope for Today program with David Hawking. Please make sure to support the ministry work of David Hawking and all the other wonderful ministries that allow us to spread the good news of Christ here on the North Valley's home for Christian talk, KKXX 930. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm going to continue with this very interesting article. It's very good uh, information that you should know and tell your friends during Christmas dinner if you can. 
And I'm going to continue. The dirty little secret that nobody dares whisper, lest the whisper trigger a self-reinforcing avalanche, is that this Fed-manipulated market is illiquid. If any serious selling were to arise, there wouldn't be enough buyers to stave off a complete implosion of the bubbles. The Fed's game is to create the illusion of liquidity by being the buyer of last resort. Only now the Fed is the only buyer. This is the toxic consequence of the Fed's 12 long years of socialism for the super wealthy. Thanks to the Fed's destruction of price discovery, the super wealthy no longer worry about liquidity, so leverage is the name of the game. The super wealthy can gamble with hundreds of billions to strip mine the economy and not worry about whether a buyer will actually pay the overvalued price of the asset because they can count on the Fed to step up and panic money print whatever sums are needed to maintain the illusion of liquidity. If the market is so healthy, why is the Fed panic money printing over $1 trillion in a few months? Please glance at the charts below. The Fed has printed $213 billion in repos and $336 billion for asset purchases in the blink of an eye, and the Fed has promised to panic print another $200 billion in repos and another $300 billion in asset purchases for a grand total of over $1 trillion in panic money printing. Why has the Fed been forced to panic money print $1 trillion to stave off an implosion of their phony market? Moral hazard is coming home to roost and the Fed is having a full-blown panic attack because the super wealthy, uh, banks, corporations, and financiers have no fear that liquidity could dry up and markets go bidless, i.e. buyers disappear and there's nobody left to buy their overvalued assets at bubble valuations. If you want to understand how liquidity can dry up overnight and bids disappear, please read Mandelbrot's book, The Misbehavior of Markets, a fractal view of financial turbulence. The point Mandelbrot makes here is that markets are intrinsically unstable and prone to sudden chaotic turbulence. In a legitimate market with intact price discovery, buyers and sellers understand risk cannot be reduced to zero, and so they trade accordingly. But in our bogus Fed-controlled market, buyers and sellers are supremely confident the Fed will always buy assets regardless of price and so they trade accordingly. There are no limits on leverage, derivative positions, credit lines, stock buybacks, or currency swaps. The Fed has been reassuring the legalized looters that the sky is the limit. Go ahead and gamble hundreds of billions of dollars. We'll buy your overvalued assets if things get dicey. And so the tissue-thin market is fundamentally illiquid, and hence the Fed's sudden panic money printing of $1 trillion dollars which is roughly equivalent to the entire GDP of Indonesia. The Fed's thorough destruction of price discovery and its elevation of moral hazard have created a monster that is about to devour the Fed's phony facade of a market. It was all fun and games enriching the super wealthy, but now the karmic cost of the Fed's manipulation and propaganda is about to come due, and few of the market's supremely complacent and confident participants are prepared for the unraveling of the Fed's illusion of liquidity. If you want an analogy, try a population of rats that have proliferated on an island, and now the ravenous horde has consumed the last remaining bits of food. You can work out what happens next. 
So that was the article that is interesting and I wanted to share with you because there is a huge problem coming with all of this printing. In other words, these treasury bonds that are kind of like the gold standard of the world as far as paper, you can have treasury bonds, they're they're even listed in economic courses as, as risk-free assets. Those are now being purchased either directly or indirectly. 90% of all that money issued is being purchased by the Federal Reserve itself. In other words, there is no real market. And that's what that article is talking about. It's giving liquidity where without that, none of this stuff would be stable. And the only reason it seems stable is because of the uh, purchasing that our own tax dollars are doing. And uh, anyway, you, you've heard this on Business Buzz many times, but I, I don't agree with it. I think it's not fair that they pick and choose who lives and who dies, and uh, it just isn't right. But anyway, since it's the holiday season, I thought I'd mention that uh, there's a article here called, uh, it was from a place called Statista, S-T-A-T-I-S-T-A dot com, and it just mentions uh, holiday retail sales, but the amount of holiday retail sales are forecast to be, uh, in 2019, 729 billion U.S. dollars, and the article just, it's no big deal, it just kind of talks about how holiday sales have gone up from 400 billion a year in the year 2000 to almost 800, well, 729 billion in 2019. So now part of the reason things are double like that, or almost double, part of the reason is because dollars are worth less than they used to be. So, but then again, for holidays, certain items are actually less expensive than they used to be. So things like computers, they cost less than they did, you know, 30 years ago, a, a good quality computer at the time was a couple thousand dollars and now you can hardly even spend that even on a top of the line laptop. You can, you can kind of get the top of the line laptop from what I've seen for like 12 or $1,300, maybe 1500. But I remember in the eighties, uh, working for my father, helping him get his office computerized. We ended up spending, it was an AT&T brand computer and it, I remember it was like $2,500 and that was back 30 years ago, which now would be the equivalent of probably $7,500. And of course the, the power of those computers 30 years ago were nothing. Uh, your cell phone today is like probably a hundred times more powerful than those $2,000 computers were 30 years ago. So the technology is amazing but the prices have come down on a lot of things, but generally prices are a lot higher. I think the easiest way to notice price inflation would be to just use a measuring stick. And the easy one to use is motel six. I remember when I was a kid, my uncle, he was one of the, he was just, he had plenty of money, but he was very tight. He would never spend a dime. He did all of his shopping at uh, garage sales and he would stay at Motel 6 when he visited, and that was the reason it was called Motel 6 was it was $6 a night when it first started. And I'll have to look this up, but I believe it was in the 1960s. So 
figure a little over 50 years ago, a Motel 6 night cost $6. And now I always look at those signs when I'm driving down the freeway here and there. In larger areas, it's like $89, $79. Sometimes it's still 59 or 69 in Butte County. Sometimes when I notice it down in Orville, the bottom line is that you're looking at a 10 to one dollar. You're looking at a 90% devaluation of the dollar when it's 10 times more expensive to rent a room. That's how the math works. It's not, not good and it's not fun, but it is, it is what it is. Could you imagine getting a room for $6 right now? In other words, that's how you think about it. Those dollars meant something back then. Those are valuable dollars. The problem is if you put paper dollars in a drawer and grab them 50 years later, they're not worth any more than they were before. So if you had put $6 in your drawer and found it 50 years later, you could not get an evening at Motel 6 for $6. Now it's going to cost you 60 70 80 whatever it is, but it's way... It's at least 10 times more than the $6. So I've got some more interesting news coming up for this lovely Christmas season. I'll be right back after this break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz, and I'll talk to you in just a minute. Hello, this is Samantha Landy, and I bring you Psalms of Hope. Heard here on Life Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon. So do tune in and join me for beautiful music and an encouraging word from the Lord. Psalms of Hope with Samantha Landy, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon, here on KKXX. In this age of ear-tickling, where are we to turn to hear the word? This is Pastor Greg Lundstedt from Equipping the Saints Radio, and I would like to invite you to tune in to Equipping the Saints to hear the uncompromising preaching and teaching of God's word on this station. Look us up on the web at www.etsradio.org. We look forward to our time in the word together. Pastor Greg Lundstedt and Equipping the Saints Radio. Weeknights at 6.30 here on KKXX. When Dad needed help getting around... I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Nothing hurts my mom that she showed anyway. She'd always say, you do what you need to do to take care of yourself. But she thought that meant she had to do it on her own. We were trained to help others, but there's strength in finding help for yourself too. We're in this together. The VA Women Veterans Call Center connects veterans with personalized information on VA services that can make a difference. 
Call 1-855-VA-WOMEN or visit www.womenshealth.va.gov. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm glad you have a chance to spend part of your Christmas season with me. Another year has gone by. Another decade is about to end. I distinctly remember New Year's Eve of 1999 going into 2000. I had played it safe and taken a chunk of my savings and bought. Back then, you didn't buy cashier's checks, you bought traveler's checks. Uh, My bank was uh, nice enough to give those without a fee. So I took a chunk of my savings when they were worried about the Y2K. I wasn't sure. I kept hearing these stories of how things were going to shut down because of the computers on the year 2000. But just to be safe, I took a chunk of savings and I bought a stack of traveler's checks just in case there was a problem with banks not opening on January 2nd. Turns out I was wrong, which is good. I, I don't mind being wrong times like that, but it's better to be safe than sorry. What There's a slogan, it's better to be prepared and not need it than to need it and not be prepared. So it was simple. I just used some of the traveler's checks for some expenses and I put the rest back in my savings. Not a problem. But that was now 20 years ago. I find it hard to believe that that's been 20 years. I mean, I I might not look the same, but I feel the same. I think the same. My brain hasn't changed. That's another reason why later in the show we're going to be talking a little bit about, about my favorite book. And I've talked about it quite a bit before. It's about the two minds, just like that guy that I just read that article from. His blog is called Of Two Minds. Now, continuing on the same vein that we just talked about with the fake markets is an article I'm going to read you from Egon von Greyers, a smart man from Switzerland, and you can read all of his things that I bring to the show at a website called goldswitzerland.com. And this one's dated December 4th. And it says, sell the NASDAQ and buy gold. It says, in the long history of governments and central banks deceiving the people, August 15, 1971 was just another date in the calendar. Throughout history, the ruling elite has always cheated the people. But the leader's irresponsible actions are always revealed as in the end, they always fail. Still, in modern times, August 15, 1971 was a monumental day. That day was not the end of the financial system and not even the beginning of the end but it was perhaps the end of the beginning. Historians will recognize this paraphrasing of Churchill after the Allies' El Alamein victory in 1942. 1913 was the beginning, and 1971 the end of the beginning. The beginning was the creation of the Fed in 1913 in order for private bankers to take control of the financial system and money creation. With August 1971 being the end of the beginning, We have therefore seen the final phase lasting soon, half a century, in creating the most ginormous super bubble that the world has ever seen. 
And then he has a graph. It says, closing the gold window opened the debt creation spigots. It says, we are now approaching the end. So we are now coming to the end after over 100 years of a fake financial system created and controlled by the bankers for their benefit. The buildup has been long, but the end will be fast and extremely painful. The speed at which the collapse will happen will take the world by surprise. The final phase happens at an exponential rate, as I explained in my article from 2017 about filling a stadium with water. There is a more scientific illustration how these exponential moves occur and also how they end. Imagine a football stadium which is filled with water. Every minute, one drop is added. The number of drops doubles every minute. Thus, it goes from 1 to 2, 4 to 8 to 16, etc. So how long would it take to fill the entire stadium? One day, one month, or a year? No, it would be a lot quicker and only take 50 minutes. That in itself is hard to understand, but even more interestingly, how full is the stadium after 45 minutes? Most people would guess 75 to 90%. Totally wrong. After 45 minutes, the stadium is only 7% full. In the final five minutes, the stadium goes from 7% full to 100% full. Global debt has tripled in the 2000s. It has taken 107 years to create global debts and liabilities of over $2 quadrillion, with most of it generated in the last 25 years. Just look at the global debt which has tripled in this century from $80 trillion to $258 trillion. This is another example of the final phase being exponential. Although debt has gone up three times in the last 20 years, what we will see in the final five years will be even more spectacular. As central banks attempt to save the system, they are now embarking on the biggest money creation in history. Saving the financial system will require more than $2 quadrillion, including derivatives and the shadow banking system. Hyperinflation will multiply these figures many times. The end of the final phase will be quick. I would be surprised if the final phase lasts more than five years. It doesn't take longer than that for asset and debt bubbles to implode. So by 2025, the total financial system will not only be unrecognizable, but also a mere shadow of what it is today. What the world will experience is the inevitable effect of a 100 years of false money, fake assets, unlimited debt, and false moral and ethical values. The fact that it will all implode over a short period like five years doesn't mean that the problems are over by then. It just means that debt and asset values have all disappeared into a black hole. The debts will be gone and all the false paper assets, like $1.5 quadrillion of derivatives, will be gone too. Virtually all bonds will be worthless also. Many good companies will survive, but profits will crash and so will price-earnings ratios. The result will be that stock prices will come down by 95% on average in real terms. A world economy which was based on fake money and false values will take a very long time to recover to where we are today. It will likely be decades or even longer. Remember that the Dark Ages lasted for 500 years after the fall of the Roman Empire. We have learned during this final phase that it is just not possible to soundly grow an economy based on debt and printed money. Every government that has attempted this has always been caught red-handed, and this is guaranteed to happen to the current fraudulent system, too. Taxation is a confiscatory levy. Well, I'm a, I'm a tax guy. That's what I do all day long. So here we go. 
Throughout history, the rulers have used numerous methods to swindle their citizens. Taxation has been the most obvious of all tricks. Taxation is a confiscatory fee on the people often levied to finance the rulers' extravagances and wars. The first known taxation was in Egypt about 3,000 years ago. Since then, there have been a multitude of taxes on goods or trade. In England and Wales in 1696, a window tax was introduced. The purpose was a tax based on the prosperity of the taxpayer. Initially, it was a flat tax of two shillings per house, uh, which is 13 pounds or $16 in today's money. There was also a variable part above 10 windows starting at four shillings. People objected to an income tax since the disclosure of personal income was considered a government intrusion into private matters. How refreshing to hear the extremely sensible values values of confidentiality and privacy which prevailed at that time. What a difference to today's world when governments are prying into our personal affairs and control the people's every move with nothing being confidential or private. Orwell was so right when in 1949 he wrote 1984, as we now have Big Brother watching every step we take. But that will end too. As the system collapses, so will government's ability to police the people. The state will run out of money and systems necessary to control the people. Income tax is a recent phenomenon. Coming back to income tax, it was first introduced in the UK in 1798, but was quickly repealed. It was reintroduced a few times and became permanent in the late 1800s. In the US, taxation was a major reason for the American Revolution, which led to the Declaration of Independence. Income tax was first introduced in the US in 1913, at 1% on income above $3,000, which very few people earned at the time. So I'm going to come back to this article in just a few minutes. Enjoy this break. It's one of the last breaks. It is. It's uh, the second to last business buzz of the decade. I will be right back after From these the messages. Stay tuned. Institute. I'm Harold Littlejohn. This is The Legal Edge, defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Dickus. Pacific Justice Institute defends religious liberty for individuals in all endeavors, including living out Christian family values. That's why the trend away from marriage and having children is of grave concern to PJI. You see, our culture paints a bleak future, so bad that many young people don't want to marry, let alone have children. A recent Gallup poll tells us that 56% of all U.S. women prefer to work outside the home, and 45% of women with children under 18 prefer a job outside the home. Pray that Americans turn their hearts back to God's plan for our families. The Pacific Justice Institute provides legal representation to individuals without charge. Learn more at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. This is Lighten Up, brought to you by Compassion International. I'm Dr. Wes Stafford on behalf of Compassion, inviting you to listen in as author, speaker, comedian, and pilot Ken Davis shares the difference between a propeller and a fan. I'm halfway clever. Now, I, I may be an idiot, but I am halfway clever. That means that I will always try to figure it out on my own. I'm a pilot. I fly my own airplane, and one time I was flying over the mountains. I will never forget this flying over the mountains, and I ran out of gas. It had two, two, in, two sides. You had the left tank and the right tank, and I just forgot to change tanks. And so I'm over the most rugged mountains in Colorado, and the, the propeller stopped. 
Do you know what a propeller on an airplane is for? You don't know? You're not a pilot then, are you? No. A lot of people think the propeller on an airplane makes the airplane fly. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I discovered that day that propeller is a fan. It's designed to keep the pilot cool. No, I'm not lying to you, because when that puppy quit, I started sweating something fierce. Have you heard the old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes? We move along through our daily lives pretending we've got it all under control. Then there's a terrible accident. 9-11 happens. An earthquake devastates an entire nation. And suddenly the disaster reminds us we're not in control. And we weren't in control before the disaster. But God is in control and trusting Him is really the only way to keep cool when the propeller stops. I'm Ken Davis. Lighten up and live. This program is made possible by Compassion International. If you would like to know how you can help, please visit us on the web at Compassion.com. Hi, this is Pastor Chris Kinson of Community Church of God in Chico. And I'm happy to announce that our church has joined KKXX. Community Church of God has been a fixture in Chico for many years and now will be coming to you over the airwaves. Our program is called Your Message for Today and will be broadcast on Saturday and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. We hope that you enjoy the Bible-based teaching and preaching that will be featured on these programs. We'd also like to extend to you an invitation to come and visit us at Community Church of God, 1095 East Avenue in Chico. Our services are 11 a.m. Sundays and Bible studies at 7 p.m. Wednesdays. Come and worship with Community Church of God and may God richly bless you. I spend a lot of time in the backyard and I'm the center of attention at summer barbecues. In 96, I made some of the tastiest s'mores. And in 09, it was me, your backyard fire pit, that accidentally started a wildfire when a summer breeze carried one of my embers into some dry brush. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm glad you're able to spend a little time with me today. The end of the decade is approaching. Next time on Business Buzz, we'll talk about resolutions and maybe business resolutions. I'm working on a lot of projects and I'm looking forward to some pretty interesting things in 2020. But for now, we're still in 2019. I'm going to get back to this article. I think it's very good information, and you should share this with friends and relatives during the holidays. So we were talking about the income tax that was introduced in the U.S. in 1913. So for thousands of years, most nations functioned with no or very low rates of taxations. There is no reason why that couldn't work again, but obviously not based on the incredible waste and bureaucracy in the system today. A complete revision of the tax system with a sales tax of, say, 10%, and corporate rate of 10% would most probably work extremely well if all the waste in the system was eliminated. People would then pay for services they used, like roads. And I'm just going to interject here. I've totally agreed with that. Of course, it would 
totally changed my CPA practice because most of my CPA practice is based on income tax preparation. So if the income tax went away, uh, my business would change a lot. But I agree. We could have a sales tax on consumption so that if you chose not to spend a lot of money, you wouldn't pay much tax. And then corporate tax. But like he says here, with all the waste and corruption and stealing that the government is involved in and the military and all that, we can never do it because all this money is basically 90% of it's being wasted. That's my opinion. I can debate on that anytime. I've been reading for, I'm old enough to have read a lot of things and I'm convinced that 90% of what we pay in in taxes ends up being wasted. Okay, I'm going to go on with this article. Debasement of currencies is a form of tax on the people. Except for confiscatory taxation, the debasement of fiat or paper money is the most common method that governments use to defraud their people. By destroying the value of money, ordinary people are robbed of their savings and their pensions. Only the wealthy can take advantage of this. They invest in asset markets, often with leverage, like stocks or property, which are benefiting from the credit expansion caused by the currency debasement. Even though the wealthy will see a colossal destruction of their wealth, they will still be left with sizable assets as long as they don't have major debt. Buildings and land held by the rich will still exist, although worth a lot less. But when Marxist socialist governments take over, they will either expropriate the properties of the wealthy or tax them so highly that owners can't afford to keep them. The UK labor leader Corbyn has already suggested that luxury properties in central London should be occupied by ordinary people and not the current wealthy residents. Most ordinary people have no assets but only debt. For the ones who have houses or apartments with a mortgage, the value of their property is likely to be lower than the debt. The question is if governments will legislate to let defrauding property, defaulting property owners stay in their houses? What about people who rent accommodation? Will they be allowed to stay too in the coming Marxist environment? The effects of letting everyone stay in their property, even if they can't service the debt or pay the rent, will obviously lead to bank defaults. So central banks will need to print more money for this purpose to prop up failing banks. Extreme wealth inequality leads to revolution. Revolutions or social unrest are often the result of economic misery for ordinary people combined with disgruntlement with the leading elite and the wealthy. In most Western countries, but also in, for example, China and Russia, the gap between the rich and the poor has reached extreme proportions. The graph below shows the gap in the USA between the wealthiest 0.1% and the bottom 90%. In the mid-1980s, the bottom 90% owned 30%, and the top 0.1% own 10% of the assets. As the graph shows, the gap has now narrowed to the extent that the top 0.1% own as many assets as the bottom 90%. Now think about that. The top 0.1%, that's the that's one out of a th- that's one out of a thousand. The top 0.1%, and a lot of people always say, oh, the one percenters. Well, we're not even talking one percenters. Actually, if you you have a good couple of good-paying jobs, if you look up the statistics, if you're a family making about 150000 a year, you're actually in around, I think, I'd have to look it up, but you're probably around the top five percenters. So we're talking the 0.1%. 
the 0.1% owns as many assets as the bottom 90%. That's amazing. And that's what's happened in the last 30 years. The income gains in the U.S. show the same gap widening between the top 1% and the rest. As the graph below shows, the top 1% has seen a 350% growth in income since 1980, while the middle 60% has only achieved a 47% increase in the same period. So the top 1%'s income has gone up 10 times faster than the middle 60%. This massive concentration of wealth and income is bad for the economy, but more importantly, very dangerous. When the economic downturn starts in the next few years, the economic misery of the poor and the hungry is likely to lead to major social unrest. So in all, we are rapidly approaching a very unstable and also dangerous period, both economically and socially. We have already seen major protests and violence today around the world, plus a significant increase in crime. Many governments can't cope with the present level of crime and protest. In Sweden, for example, the prisons are full already. When these problems escalate, the world is likely to become a less safe place as governments lose control of law and order. Well, I'm not going to go on, on and on and on, but uh, this is just something that I think you, I recommend that you read. I recommend you visit goldswitzerland.com and read. He's got a bunch of commentary. All these ones that I've print and bring to Business Buzz, uh, they're all there on that website. It's a really smart guy. And anyway, I, I enjoy reading his stuff. And I really just want everybody to know that I'm not a doom and gloom person, but you really need to be prepared for what's coming. If the if the value of the dollar goes down, 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 uh, you you're... The way it's going to work is like this. If you're living right now on a, a say, a 3000 a month pension, if prices triple, that's going to be as if you're trying to live on 1000 a month. So that's the way you need to think about it. Okay, getting towards the end of the hour, I've got an interesting article. One of my favorite books is called A Course in Miracles. So I thought I would, you know, relate that a little bit with Christmas coming up. And uh, this is a article written in 1990 by Kenneth Wapnick, W-A-P-N-I-C-K. He's one of the original people who actually, I believe he edited the actual Course in Miracles book with the woman who, I won't say wrote it because she never claimed to have written it. She dictated, it was dictated to her and she put it down in writing. And Kenneth Wapnick is a major course guy over the years. He, I believe he's passed away, but uh, he had a lot of good commentaries. I wanted to read this because he wrote about Christmas, so in how it relates to the Course in Miracles. It is not always recognized that Christmas, the most celebrated of all Christian holidays, has its origins in much older traditions. What we now celebrate as the Christmas season began in antiquity as a solar festival centering on the winter solstice, December 22nd commemorating the lengthening of the day and the triumph of the sun's light over darkness. In the Zoroastrian religion of Persia, Mithras, son of the god of light, Ahura Mazda, was himself identified with the sun and light. Eventually, Zoroastrianism and Mithraism spread throughout the Roman Empire, and the end of December was celebrated as the birthday of Mithras and the defeat of darkness by the light, as each day slowly grew longer. This fit in well with the Roman feast of Saturnalia, December 17th to 25th, which honored the god Saturn. 
The Roman celebrations, interestingly enough, included the exchange of gifts, family banquets, and holidays from work and school. At the dawn of the Christian era, and for more than 300 years, these pagan observances continued. Nevertheless, the early Christians celebrated Jesus' birth on various dates. It was not until 354 A.D. that Pope Liberius ordered the faithful to honor December 25th as the official birth date of Jesus, conveniently dovetailing with the Mithraic and Saturnalian observances. It is interesting to note that nowhere in A Course in Miracles does Jesus discuss any of the nativity references found in the Gospels or in Christian tradition. In fact, he summarily dismisses the Incarnation, the foundation stone of Christian theology, by stating, and this is a quote from The Course in Miracles, The Bible says the word or thought was made flesh. Strictly speaking, this is impossible. Thought cannot be made into flesh except by belief, since thought is not physical. Clearly, the Christian theological and liturgical emphasis on the special circumstances of Jesus' birth, the Annunciation and the Virgin Birth, expressed most strikingly God's direct intervention in human history by causing this event to occur. This seems to be a carryover from Greek mythology where the gods and goddesses always intervened in human affairs, a situation impossible for the god of the course, who does not even know about the existence of the material world. Furthermore, we can say that the Annunciation and the Virgin Birth reflect a paradigm myth to which we can no longer resonate, for they reinforce the bitter idols of specialness Jesus refers to in the Course Manual. The Course states unequivocally that Jesus was a man who saw the face of Christ in all his brothers and remembered God, and further emphasizes his inherent equality with us by speaking of him as an elder brother, as much a part of the sonship of God as we all are. How then can we sift through the illusions surrounding Christmas to encounter the reality behind the symbol? As students of A Course in Miracles, we should ask ourselves, ourselves echoing Jesus' injunction, what is it for? What is Christmas for? And what purpose does it serve in our lives? Does holding on to the values inculcated in us by social norms and religious teachings interfere with, or does it further our establishing a personal relationship with Jesus? Does Christmas, with all of its festivities and merrymaking, distract us from, or does it foster our truly joining with the sonship? Better yet, why is the Jesus of the Course so different from the biblical one? In the spirit of this important statement, to learn this Course requires willingness to question every value that you hold. We may reflect on these questions as we enter the holiday season, and by asking Jesus' help, we can pass through the veils of illusion that hindered our vision of the truth. Instead of being a holiday that at worst represents commercialism at its most rampant, or at best a holy day commemorating the special and unique sacredness of Jesus, Christmas can now become a symbol of the rebirth of the Christ in each of us, the holy light that shines equally in every seemingly separated fragment of the sonship. The sign of Christmas is a star, a light in darkness. See it not outside yourself, but shining in the heaven within, and accept it as the sign the time of Christ has come. Thus the observance of Christmas reminds us that as we accept Jesus as our model for learning, we too can become manifestations of the love of Christ, which, never having been separated from its source, needs no nativity to be. It simply awaits our acceptance, and of such 
is the reality of Christmas. So that was from Kenneth Wapnick. If you're if you're interested in if you like videos instead of reading a print, you can go to YouTube and just type in Wapnick and the letters A C I M and there's tons of his he does a lot of videos where he's speaking to a group of people and he he's very knowledgeable on he's he's knowledgeable on the course but like I say the whole course uh, it's just something that resonated with me and the main thing about it is uh, it helps me I enjoy it I think you might it might be worth um, at least looking into but if you ever have YouTube and you want to just kind of get a little peace for a while, just turn on a Kevin Wapnick, uh, Kenneth Wapnick video and listen to some of his interpretations, like that one about Christmases. I thought it was kind of nice. So thanks for joining me on Business Buzz. I appreciate you spending some time with me. I will be back soon. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Have a great holiday, and I'll see you next time on Business Buzz. KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico.